Listeners, beware, you're in for a scare. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Welcome back to State of the Franchise. The podcast discusses franchise of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, types, and genres. I am your host, Tom Stadler, here with my creepy co-host, Fred Dakin. Ooh, it's so creepy. I've got goosebumps. <laughs> In this hundred degree weather, it's good time to be spooky. You're going to get chills today. Oh. <laughs> I like that this is like the opening of one of those old like movie marathon on Saturday night, like on like Canadian TV. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're actually doing this in black and white. Yeah, people can't see at home. But yeah, it's audio medium, but this is in black and white. Fred is dressed up like Frankenstein's monster. I've got some Dracula makeup on. It's really feeling good. Uh, we got a very exciting episode this week. We were discussing the book franchise and the adaptations of it for Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. Here to join us this week, our special guest... Goosebumps aficionado, Nick Kaldunsky. Evening, gentlemen. How are we doing? <laughs> doing fantastic. How are you, Nick? Excellent. If he's creepy, does that make me crawly? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good line. I like it. I like it. I like that we're getting right into it. And I am I can feel the the spooky puns because it's kind of fitting with this franchise, guys. I think, mm-hmm. you know, for anyone who's not familiar with Goosebumps, it's a series of horror stories for children that adults also kind of like yeah those are some sharp words coming from you tom but, uh, <laughs> i guess you could say that that it's not for not for adults isn't it kind of the disney adult like whole yeah. thing yeah it's super super normal you know that people like you know stuff for kids it's very cool <laughs> it's very comforting it's the young adult version mm-hmm. you know preteen. sure i think being in my 30s makes me a young adult i mean I suppose in context or relative to where people were 100 years ago, yeah, we are young adults now. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, back in the, what, 1700s, 1600s, people were probably dying at age 40 mm-hmm. normally. So. Yeah, I'd be getting some respect around here at age 33. <laughs> in 1700s, you were dying from goosebumps. That's so <laughs> kind of true. You'd be the elder statesman. Or um, they were checking for them to see if you were a witch. Yes, that's true, too. And uh, much like our government today, it's sort of like hearsay goes, you know, that's (laughs) if you deny it, you're lying. But if you if you float, you're a witch. That's true. (laughs) It's absolutely true. Uh, Speaking of your your witchy background, Nick, I think uh, what we really want to know, though, as we get into talking about Goosebumps is where did you kind of get started with the series? You know, what were the first books that you read and. What's been your your exposure to it since then? Sure, sure. Uh, well, my exposure goes way back, kind of around when they first came out, like 92, 95 area. Uh, it started with the books. And actually, I used to read them with my mom. That oh. was like the books we read together before I started just reading them myself. Okay. So it kind of started with, if you guys remember the scholastic book fairs in oh, like elementary school, yes. they had the big old like steamer trunks full of books and you were sent to school that day with like a dollar in your pocket and you were like i'm gonna buy a book Um, (laughs) when i sorry i was just gonna say when i walk through the pearly gates it's just gonna be a book fair (laughs) (laughs) smells like those scholastic trunks oh yeah oh man 
Those were good days. So I used to buy like a book every time we had one of those fairs or we'd find them at like garage sales or whatever. And that all kind of started with like they were approachable. They were horror-esque. There's definitely a lot of camp. There's a lot of like bad jokes and stuff in the books. So Mm -hmm. it was approachable. My parents felt comfortable with it because there's like there's no drugs. There's no real violence to speak of there, you know, stuff like that. So it was like. These are okay. Shout out to Peter Intile, who on your other episode for Wayne's World posited the question of what movie did your parents let you watch way too early? Well, uh, mom, if you're listening, earmuffs. uh, For me, it was the TV adaptation of Stephen King's It. With Tim Curry as Pennywise. That kind of started my appreciation of horror in general. I remember not even finishing the movie because I was too scared, mm. but I didn't say anything to my parents. So I just like got up and started playing computer games instead. <laughs> I was like, I need to check out. <laughs> well, fast forward a little bit. That's kind of where I was like drawn to the goosebumps and they had these cool cover art and they were fun neon colors. And I had the like Dr. Dreadful kits, which was like the kid boy version of the easy bake oven. So like I was in that world. Right. Mm-hmm. So We used to read them together, like a chapter at a time. Um, Eventually, they came out with the Give Yourself Goosebumps series as like a tag along, which were reader directed stories. So like you would read a chapter and it would pose a question like if you want to go this route, go to this page Mm -hmm. or if you want to go that route, go to that page. Well, there was only one correct way to get through the book. Mm -hmm. And if you hit a dead end, you died. Right. So that's how we would like cut it off. Like, okay, it's time to go to bed. You either lived or you died. Like, if you died, (laughs) go to bed. So that was that was the introduction. And then Saturday mornings came along once they started doing the TV adaptations. Watching that was like an okay thing to watch because it was kind of as funny as it was scary. Mm -hmm. So my parents were like, "This is okay. This isn't too bad." Meanwhile, I'm like getting bad ideas and like wandering into the abandoned barn in the neighborhood next door, like trying to all that kind of stuff. But so that's kind of that, that was my intro to the series and kind of like got hooked. And I think for myself and I'm sure many fans of goosebumps, uh, it was kind of the gateway, if you will, into a broader appreciation of horror in general. Sure. Uh, So, you know, it's the, Mary Jane of horror books. It's your it's your gateway <laughs> drug. Yeah, that's that was kind of how I got started. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely. I feel like you're probably not alone in that. Um, yeah, that's like what my brother went through. It was him and our grandmother would read the books together. And by the time, like I was, you know, I was little too young as they were coming out. I was like three or four, but I could take them off the shelf and I could look at the pictures. Oh, yeah. And like that was enough to be like, oh, God, because he literally had rows of them. And so I definitely think that was you were at that right time because you were getting all the goodies and stuff. And yeah, I was a little late for it, but I definitely was very into it. And it was the TV show was one of the few shows that aired on public television. That's right. Yes. So that's big for me. That's right. <laughs> so you did not actually buy any books yourself, Fred? No, it was like a lot of things in my life, kind of like a hand-me-down interest, you know? It was mm-hmm. just there. And, of course, you know, it's very enticing to, like, just look at the covers, you know? And 
even like I remember just kind of reading the backs of them for a while. And then eventually I got into just reading them. Sure. And I think the covers are, I mean, now you look at them, you're like, okay, these are fairly tame. But as a kid, you're like, holy cow, these are creepy. Like, yes. And some of them definitely more than others. I mean, it's, there's one called Chicken Chicken, which is literally like it's a body of a chicken with a kid's head. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> there, there are some that are definitely in the like campy realm. But then there are some like I brought the one called You Can't Scare Me. And it's got it's like dark sepia and orange tones. And it's like these mud monsters coming out of like a swamp and mm-hmm. they're like legitimately scary, even for, you know, the protagonists are like 12 13 years old typically so right um the i think the cover art at least on the original run was like one of the big draws because it was so well done yeah and i i know i sent you guys a photo in our chat leading up to this episode where as a kid i had a say cheese and die Mm t-shirt and i don't know that i would even describe myself as like a big goosebumps fan at that time but it was pretty cool having that shirt i bet and that's probably one of the creepier covers with this the skeleton family at the cookout Mm -hmm. and because it's just very unsettling being like well what the heck are we looking at here why are these people in action like this yeah there's like a lot of dread to the pictures i think no absolutely i think there's there's a sense of like uneasiness every time you look at one of them even when the most mm-hmm. uh, the tame one it's like with the chicken chicken you got the the head of the girl on the chicken but it's still sort of like okay what's happening here yeah. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. something's something's not right in this world but yeah i think my my experience too is very similar to yours fred in that my sister was the one who initially started buying and collecting all the books so that's where i saw him at the scholastic school fair then and I'd be like, get this one, get this one. And I would kind of have to implore her like, oh, man, this one looks really good. And <laughs> I was like, we don't have 32 yet. We got to get that one. <laughs> yeah. And by the time like I was going to the book fairs, the series that was definitely not as good as Goosebumps were. And I don't even I couldn't even tell you a title, but the the scheme of the titles were a monster doesn't do this like vampires don't do homework or mm. werewolves don't teach gym. Oh, yeah. And I know I got. The I know I got it from the book fair because the thing with the book fair with me, if the book came with like a little bullshit toy, <laughs> that's what I was getting. And I remember getting like a rubber bat with the book. And it was just definitely one of those pale imitations of the goosebumps, though. <laughs> well, it felt like a lot of them were all pale imitations even after this. Remember, what was it? Fear Street was his other book? Well, series? Fear Street's a little so, different. Fear Street's a little different. That I'm going to let our guests take it. It came before Goosebumps. Okay. And actually, I, I had to check this out, but the Netflix adaptations of Fear Street are actually adaptations of those Stein books. Oh, okay. So that's kind of where that came from and how um, R.L. Stein was approached by Scholastic to create kind of a kid's series because he had already done fear street and that Mm. was already a standing like developed product, but fear street was more slightly older than than goosebumps. Like Like, goosebumps was supposed to be like the next like younger generation for like getting them appreciation of horror. Sure. Yeah. Fear street. I've only like read, I read one of the books and I saw the Netflix show, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool show. Cause Mm. it feels like, it kind of feels like you're watching R-rated Goosebumps, and it's pretty fun that way. Yeah. yeah. 
A lot of 90s needle drops, which is pretty fun, too. <laughs> yeah. Get down with that. Yeah, it was more R-rated. And I feel like it was probably more targeted toward, like, people who are reading, like, Hunger Games. Or, like, kind of that, like, YA that's a little darker. Yeah. I feel like that's the sweet spot for Fear Street. Gotcha. Yeah. I've never read or seen anything of Fear Street. So that's why I'm, I'm sort of confused. Because I almost thought it was a separate series at first. Because wasn't there a competing, like, book series for Goosebumps that was by a different author? The name Grisham keeps coming to the head, but that's obviously not right. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. I, I, yeah, I, I can only think of the one I was talking about earlier and then the Nickelodeon one. Oh, Are You Afraid of the yeah, Dark? Yeah, Are You Afraid of the Dark? No, that's my jam. If we want to do a podcast yep. episode on that. <laughs> Which oh, I hear, like, that is definitely, I hear there are people that are goosebump people and there are people that are Are You Afraid of the Dark people. So Are You Afraid of the Dark actually came before Goosebumps what? by, like, five years was before mm. the Goosebumps series. It was a TV show? It was a TV show first. But then there was also like Erie, Indiana, mm-hmm. um, and some a couple other ones that like came out. Like Goosebumps, I think, was even bigger than Are You, like, Are you Afraid of the Dark. I remember watching that. Like, that was legit. Sure. But Goosebumps kind of almost took it to another level mm-hmm. because, and some of the reasons why I like that one, and th- there was... I felt like a little more production value mm-hmm. in in Goosebumps. Like oh, they had, sure. they had the music and they had actual practical effects, like with the masks or the monsters, or it it was like a guy in a costume or a legit mask or you know stuff. There was definitely some some production in that, uh, which coincidentally enough was also Canadian. It was, yeah, there's a lot of Canadian in yeah. Goosebumps too, for sure. And Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think was also a Canadian. Oh, Are You Afraid of the Dark is a Canada Fest is the difference. Yeah. Like yeah. Goosebumps every once in a while you hear an episode where you hear like, oh God, this is definitely all Canadian actors and but are you afraid of the darks like he can I tell you scary story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well the the entire effects team for Goosebumps was in Toronto. Oh dang. Yeah. Wow. So like there's some serious ties up there. That's interesting. And there actually are a couple actors that I think I was just looking at some of the episode like screen caps. And I definitely recognize a couple of kids who were in, like, the Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes. And it's it's interesting that these were all at the same time because it, it kind of feels like it was almost this, like, kids horror renaissance of, like, we're going to tone down Stephen King and all these other popular, like, 80s entities and start turning them into something that's more marketable and more, you know, consumable for, like, families or audiences of younger ages um, and that's kind of something that you even uh, brought up, Nick, was that it was sort of a gateway for you into your adult years. So even now that you're into more horror, you know, what keeps bringing you back to Goosebumps then? So it's interesting. And I actually had a little bit of introspective time to think about this because it's been a while since I've, you know, reapproached a Goosebumps book mm-hmm. and uh, rereading a couple of them in, you know, preparation for, for the podcast here. Uh, there's a reason why some of them just don't translate super well. I mean, they're, yeah. they're extremely directed to that, you know, preteen level almost to a fault because mm. I mean it hit it hit the tone perfectly exactly what they were trying to do and who they were trying to market towards but there's somewhat you know like formulaic structure there's some you know there it's an anthology series so outside of a couple of uh, individual items largely non-recurring individuals from book to book but that said 
some of them really hold up and some of them are actually really interesting. Like mm. I re I reread the first monster blood, which is like one of the first five books that was published. It's and, a good book. And I mean, it, it holds <laughs> up. I mean, it, it's, it's got your isolation tropes. It's got your, you know, small town scares. It's got, you know, the, the titular monster blood, which oddly enough is actually not monster blood. turns out to be a cursed child's toy. So now all of a sudden you're like you're going from a weird like monster thing and then all of a sudden the twist is it's actually a a witch that's been a cat the whole time and and cursed it. So now there's this supernatural twist and Hmm. it's definitely interesting looking back at like I can understand why I appreciated it so much as a kid. But there are some things that I thought were really interesting as an adult rereading some of the books there are some, I think, potentially unintended recurring themes. Mm. So things like adulthood is a scam, like largely a lot of the in, in the books. So they're all obviously through the eyes of the adolescent. And what's one thing that a lot of adol- adolescents will complain about is my parents don't listen to me. Right. <laughs> well, a lot of the parents, oddly enough, outside of monsters are completely hopeless and they don't Mm -hmm. listen and they don't pay attention and they're useless when it comes to like fixing the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it kind of speaks to this broader sense of like adults in general are so tied into their own lives and interest. There's, there's like this self-preservation interest of like keeping the facade of adulthood important that they're going to ignore their own kid when they're telling them that their piano teacher is a monster <laughs> when, you know, two, two seconds with the guy would have been like, oh, hey, maybe I should not be sending my kid here mm-hmm. for piano lessons. Like stuff like that, where there's kind of this commentary on the lack of attention of adults. Yeah. A couple of other things that I thought were interesting were like there's a continued theme of life is a game Mm. like you have to figure out what you're doing you have to figure out where you are and how to get yourself out of a situation even when you don't know the rules so like growing up and getting into adulthood and like nobody knows what they're doing everyone's just winging it right like there's this unintended quote-unquote recurring theme that like they have to figure it out they don't know what's going on no one believes them they have to use their logic and their wits and they fix the problem or they find out what's going on. You bring up a funny thing with the parent thing. Cause I watched a couple episodes of the TV series just to kind of refamiliarize myself with some of the stories. And yeah, it was like, they goofed on the parents and both these things. Like there's these really concerning weird things happening in the house. And the parents are like, you're fine. You're just exaggerating. I don't know why you yeah. guys are getting so up and about yourselves or about yourselves. <laughs> they would have actually said it. Just calm down and watch some hockey. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, I think there, there is an interesting thread though that you brought up there too with like kids needing to kind of figure themselves out. It's almost kind of like, in that regard, it's things that kids want to do is like they want to be self-sufficient. Right. Yeah. And this is like a book that or a book series at all. They're, they're just like, yeah, here are like kind of the tools that you're given to sort of, you know, find your way into adulthood and so to speak. And I wonder if that is like an accidental sort of like reoccurring thing. 
Because the other way to approach it is like one of the scariest things for a kid is their parents can't help them in a bad yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it almost kind of develops that theme. And I wonder if like that's how he approached it or if he just approached from a different way. Is he like, what's the scariest thing to a kid is like your parents aren't there to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, isn't that kind of something we see, too, in like a lot of adult horror films and stories, too, is that. These are people who need to be resourceful in the face of something supernatural or unusual happening to them. And it's like, what would you do in this situation? And so you're trying to like kind of play it down to a point of like, well, how would kids react to this? And it's just an interesting way to kind of look at that. It's like, yeah, it's not only I mean, we keep coming back to like it's it's a gateway, right? It's a gateway to this other thing. I mean, it's a gateway to adulthood, too, as much as it is a gateway to adult horror films. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Fred? What are some things that like brought you back to Goosebumps over and over? Well, my answer is not going to be as succinct. <laughs> I will say that it's a really nice show to come back after hanging out with your friends at the bar. Yeah. And you want to throw some? You want to get a little spooky? But hey, it's two in the morning. Let's not get too scary. I'm by <laughs> myself here. So that's how it works for me because I'm a guy who loves spooky shit. You know, if you're yeah. pouring a glass of that spooky shit, you better pour too. <laughs> and so that why I like the show a lot and why I'll throw it on every once in a while at night is because I want horror that is safe. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not going to put on like the conjuring at, you know, two in the morning by myself with the lights off. No, that's scary, man. Yeah. But some goosebumps, you know, it's got like a really cool aesthetic and vibe. It's kind of like, even though it's not Halloween themed, it is just kind of like great Halloween aesthetic, like from the music to the shots and just, I don't know. There's something about like, even just coming back from the theme, the opening theme part and it's like, you know, quiet scene in the beginning and you have like the green globby writing mm-hmm. that just like puts me in comfort zone. And it also just feels like I love that era TV. I said it on Star Trek, like that 90s kind of, you know, especially at adaptations of children's works in the 90s. I find very comforting. I remember loving like the mouse and the motorcycle movies and oh all gosh, those. Yeah. Like anything that they would throw on at school, uh, the mixed up files of Miss Basley, Frank Weiler, the movie, anything like that is just super comforting to me. I don't know why. Yeah. And there's definitely like, as soon as something from that era comes on, you know it immediately. Like you don't even have to recognize whatever, you know, commercial property it is. There's just a feel for like media out of that era that is super comforting and kind of scratches that nostalgia itch. Yeah. It's got that kind of fuzziness to it a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which adds to the horror. It's like when you watch like an eighties slasher movie and it has that grime to it and that's doing like half the work for it. Yeah. I feel there's something to that with nineties aesthetic too, especially in this sort of form. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we talked about it, too, already with Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like, it has that that kind of grainy sort of, like, made-for-kids feel where it's like, they could have been making this in the back of, a, like, a, a theater, like, at some school, <laughs> yeah. and you wouldn't have known the difference, really. And that might be a good segue, actually, into our history and highlights here, because as we already discussed, Goosebumps got started from 1992 to 1997 was the book run. In that time, 62 books were published under the Goosebumps Umbrella title. Uh, Nick already did a good job of hitting on a couple of the spinoff titles. Give Yourself Goosebumps, which 
I remember reading. I have very fond memories of that. I remember the escape from something. It had the big old purple like alligator thing on the front. Yeah. There's the alligator one, and the one that I loved was uh, it's like the purple peanut butter. Purple peanut. So it was like the literally the front was like a kid in a peanut butter sandwich, but it was purple and it was like oozy and, and uh. gross. But every time I saw it, I thought of the like Smuckers. A combined like grape oh, jelly yeah, and, pe- and peanut butter thing. So it was mm-hmm. like just a great, great cover. Oh man. He does see they do the gross whore pretty well in some goosebumps, I will say. Not my thing, but I do give her I tip the hat. Yeah, absolutely. There is with that give yourself goosebumps, that's basically just choose your own adventure, but we might get sued for the trademark because yes. that's what Black Mirror found out on Netflix, right? And the cover pages, and I'll have to see which came first. I'm pretty sure it was this, but Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember those books, but that was the first time I remember looking at pictures in a book and being like, oh, my God, this is extremely unsettling. Well, those are, like, unsettling even for an adult, those stories. Like, those are ones I wouldn't want to read by myself at night. I'll read a Goosebumps, but... And those crude, like... Like pen heavy drawings that were in those books were super frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. I'm still just kind of like creeped out thinking about a couple of the illustrations, which is something the movie did very well, too. I Mm -hmm. thought it was bringing those to life. And you're like, yeah, that's still kind of (laughs) fucked. So we talked about this, too, that a Goosebumps TV series was then produced uh, in Canada by Protocol Entertainment in association with Scholastic Productions. Uh, the TV anthology series ran for four seasons from 1995 to 1998. So pretty much once the books were at their end, the show came into being uh, on the Fox Network. So that's how you saw it on public TV, Fred. Mm-hmm. I saw it with Home Improvement, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Magic School Bus. Magic School Bus. That oh, was yeah. the line. Zoom, maybe, if I got home early enough. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Dude, everybody talked about Zoom. I've never seen that. And when when the pandemic started, everyone's like, it's like the show Zoom. And Mm -hmm. what is Zoom? (laughs) Zoom was like what I remember was like a bunch of kids from all different backgrounds, of course, you know. Yeah. And it would just be like, oh, we're going to learn about China. And then one of them was (laughs) in China. Like, oh, look at this. They have chopsticks here and they're like super like bland boring stuff and then they would do like crafts and then there'd be like songs like it was pretty much just like i don't know if kids made their own tv show it was the feeling of it i remember like they made like a carousel with animal crackers and pixie sticks yeah i tried doing it i remember i poured all the pixie sticks because you just need the straws into a big old ziploc and i was just like (laughs) Gumming that for a good week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Why is Fred shaking? Oh, that's why. (laughs) So we got through the end of the TV series, and then they first started talking about a Goosebumps film in 1998, which was going to be produced by Tim Burton, which is very interesting news that I had never read before until I was doing research for this episode. And the film did not materialize because they could not find a script they liked. And they really couldn't find a book that they wanted to adapt into a film, which I think when you look at some of the books that, you know, we're looking at before, they're thin. Like, they're not, there's not a lot of meat to these. 
And they're very much like formulaic. Like I remember I saw an interview with Arl Stein where he talks about how he writes the books, and when you hear it, it's kind of takes a little air out of the balloon. But he's just like, yeah, I have a story idea, and then I have my chapter outlines, and I know at the every end of every chapter there has to be like a cliffhanger or a jump scare. And like he oh, just had man. it broken down super mathematically how he does it. Oh no! And and he starts with the title a lot. Really? Like, it's so backwards from so many other... Like, he literally started, like, all, for, I think, all of Goosebumps, he would start with a title and then work his way into the book. Wow. Which I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I guess you have to be a talented author in order to be able to process a book that way and a story oh, that yeah, way. Oh, yeah, you got to know a lot about, like, writing and, you know, books to be able to be so, like, calculated about that, I think. Yeah, because, like, I think Arl Stein gets a lot of crap you know we're talking about you know a kid's version everyone's like oh he's the kid's version of stephen king right and Mm -hmm. it's sort of like but he also has sold a lot of books i think he's got the second most selling book series of all time after harry potter so it's like you know (laughs) i I don't look because i mean like it's i get it because they're both like horror like kind of nerdy horror authors but i feel like there isn't much of a comparison i feel like stephen king is like a character guy with really sloppy horror and Arl Stein's a guy with really tight horror and pretty flat characters. Cause yeah. every book you start reading, it's like, hi, my name's blank. I'm this year's old. And this is my thing like that. I'm interested in, <laughs> or here's my problem, my brother. And like, <laughs> yeah, they're still good, but like there's not character development and Stephen King's like all character development. I mean, if you're not in a Stephen King book, for the character development, you might be a little disappointed by some of the stories sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, we'll save our, our King universe for another day because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. But, I mean, there's definitely some books where I'm like, and that ended. Okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> well, you brought up, like, they were trying to figure out, like, a book to do this. And then later, we'll talk about later what they ended up doing for the movie, which I knew was trouble from the start. I just didn't like that approach. Jack Black. Um, but um, <laughs> no, but what I guess what I would have wanted, and I'm not like jumping ahead too much. I just want to throw this out there is I think they should have just collaborated with Arl Stein and made a movie length new story mm. and maybe have like a cameo or a scene with Slappy or something like you bring in like a car- like one big heavy in it. Sure. Well, and R.L. Stein has the catalog of adult horror. Like he didn't just write young adult or preteen horror. He has adult focused novels. Yeah. And he's also written film novelizations for other movies. Like mm. he does know how to do this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, pick a slappy or pick, you know, there are very few of the Goosebumps stories that are more than one book. You know, there's a couple that are like two, three, four installments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pick one of those and don't necessarily like adapt the book, but use it as like an idea framework to like jump off. I do wonder if part of the problem with what they were trying to do though, in adapting a story is the fact that a lot of these stories are almost like parodies of familiar stories. You have what the, the, Phantom of the Auditorium. Auditorium. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so Phantom of the Opera. And then yep. you got 
you know, like the mummy or whatever it was. Like, it's like, okay, this is just the mummy. <laughs> that is something that he does that's similar to Stephen King is if he's going to give you a vampire story, it's not going to be your normal vampire. He's going to have his own creative twist on it. I think that's a good comparison. Yeah. Like if you read like Salem's Lot doesn't read like your traditional vampire and neither does Vampire's Breath. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've never read Vampire's Breath. So what's the encapsulation of that story? I don't know. That cover, though. <laughs> Vampire peeking out of a coffin with stinky breath. <laughs> That's actually one I looked at and decided to not read in prep. So I, I can't say. Great. I don't remember it being a memorable story, but the cover is definitely a thing. And I also remember the va- it playing on the vampire mythos a little bit. Ooh, a good example, I'll say one of my favorite of the TV adaptations, which they did like a two-part TV, was uh, Werewolf Skin. Then I don't remember the full mythology behind how they did it, but it was the idea that they had these like werewolf skins that they had to put on, and that mm. was like how they transformed. Mm. Like this, it was kind of like the haunted mask, but with a werewolf skin. Yeah. So maybe. Th- think to actually pull up some some summaries too of these books mm. nick nikolai was a normal kid till <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are also like some author tropes that like did bleed into goosebumps that i think he doesn't get enough credit for right like there's the un, you know unreliable narrator or yeah, the the he always has a twist ending or it's never exactly straightforward mm. but that's in like the best of goosebumps whereas there was a lot of them that were like very kind of flat yeah yeah like the cover was doing most of the work yeah <laughs> like definitely. deep trouble couldn't tell you what happens in that but that hammerhead shark on that cover <laughs> that's scary that's legit. <laughs> and um i think it it might even be a good chance to talk about the cover now before we even get into more of the movie lore because uh the the illustrator's name is Tim Jacobus, and he, I think, had really that knack for exactly as you guys are kind of saying, like drawing intrigue to the book where it almost became as much a collector's item as much as it was like a story that you wanted to read. Right. Like, would you even say at one point you've read all the books? I don't no, think so. No, definitely. But like you said, the collector thing in the 90s, you know, we collected Pokemon cards and we collected Pogs and mm-hmm. we collected the Snapple Elemental drink bottles, right? Like, yeah. Well, I that never died. We got I, NFTs now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's still here, but I definitely collected the books, like, because I liked the cover art and also because I was the kind of person that was like, I want all of them. I definitely did not read all of them, but I wanted all of them. And the funny thing about the the cover art done by Tim, he was so prolific throughout the the Goosebumps run. Mm -hmm. There was actually a rumor going around that he used to work for Converse because he, so many of the covers like work in Converse art or like sneakers or stuff like that. And he was like, no, I just like drawing sneakers. Oh, that's a wild. (laughs) He does draw some sick sneakers. (laughs) When you start thinking about it, I will say, like, when I always told myself when I if I buy a house eventually, 
I'm not a collector person, but I am going to hop on eBay and just buy the all of them, just have them in the house. Just because I want, that's like one thing, I think they're cool looking. Mm -hmm. It's not a super expensive thing to get interested in. no, not at all. You can get them all for like 150 bucks. Yeah. And like, I just, I'm going to pull that trigger and just have them on the shelf because, you know, kids, I would love to read them with a kid one day. Also me, just like. Look at that, that's scary. Yeah. Now, are you talking about the whole original run, like, or are you going to get all the spinoff books too? Like, what is the originals and spinoffs, and then I'll probably world? decide my cutoff as I go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually had that exact scenario where I'm trying to get the entire original run. My daughter is not old enough; she's only eight months old. Um, <laughs> it's a little too young. It's a little too young. But uh, just recently, we had two of my nieces stay with us, and. I typically tell them a scary story at night whenever they stay over, and I actually adapted one of the scary stories to tell in the dark, oh, like stories wow. to them, like brought it down to earth a little bit. But this last time I was like, I don't really want to come up to anything. Why don't you two go pick a Goosebumps book off the shelf, read it, tell me what you think. If you don't finish it while you're here, like take it home. So right there was the first, like they're approachable. They're the right age. Like, have at it see what you think yeah no i think that's definitely a good way to go about it and it's definitely good to think about who's going to be able to have it I mean, people it seems like you could read one of these in a night if you had a guest over or, oh, yeah, yeah, or oh, yeah. you know nieces nephews kids like there's definitely some some easy consumability with these books i think it definitely is legit but yeah so i think that's definitely a big piece of what makes these books kind of stick is the the art and yeah the collectability is big but i think there is something else to be said too for how i shouldn't say they're relatable the stories aren't relatable but they're familiar right it's something we sort of touched on too with like the the parody trope but there's something about when you watch one of these on the tv series or you read one of the books where it starts to feel like oh i kind of know this story but then, as you guys were talking about, he does a good job of doing those twists. And I think that's probably why, as we get back to the movie thing here, it's so hard to find something that would have been original without writing something that's just original. But George Romero tried to do it. Yeah, I would say I am not very interested in a Tim Burton one because that's too much of a potent flavor. I think it wouldn't be what I want, but George Romero, I feel, I kind of want to see that. So, George A. Romero, for those who are not familiar with him, just in the case other people don't know him, it's uh, the director behind Night of the Living Dead, all like the big zombie movies, kind of the, the godfather of zombie movies, right? And his idea for a Goosebumps movie was going to be an adaptation of Welcome to Dead House, which was the first book. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And he wanted to do that with a focus on capitalism and greed, but did not go forward at the studios for unknown reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, what that made me think of was that's kind of the vibe of the new uh, oh. scary stories to tell in the dark, whatever it was. Yeah. There's like a through line about like Vietnam and war in that movie mm-hmm. that Guillermo del Toro, I feel a guy kind of in a similar vibe as George Romero, 
Like he's like, yes, I wanted to make it about the politics of the sixties and seventies, and yeah, I'm just like, yeah. you wanted to make this this movie about that, yeah. and I felt like I thought of that right when you said the George Romero thing, or you had it in the notes. I was like, this sounds like Guillermo del Toro talking about his movie. Yeah, and I mean, we'll save scary stories for a whole other episode because I think there is something interesting there now that we do have the movie and the books, but it is interesting to see that take where you are kind of getting into this whole backstory and trying to make it relatable to a modern society through like, hey, look at look at the past through this lens. Because you don't expect the movie to take that, that avenue at all. And I think through a Goosebumps lens, that would have been super fascinating and something that I think a lot of kids who grew up with this would have latched onto now is like, oh, I remember hearing about how great the 60s and 70s were growing up when mm-hmm. I was a kid and you sort of realize, oh, yeah, no, actually, it was sort of a not great time. Forrest Gump lied to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're the movie nerds now, right? Like, we're, we're the generation that grew up on this. We have that nostalgia kick. We mm-hmm. have that tie to it where, yeah, we, we are the perfect market yeah. for, for that kind of a movie. Absolutely. And I think that's why a movie like Scary Stories, Tell in the Dark kind of worked and what goosebumps ended up coming up with which i'll throw this out i did not dislike it <laughs> but it's fine it's fine it just doesn't feel like goosebumps yeah because it was in january of 2012 uh they finally reported they had a draft of a screenplay written by the guy who wrote shrek forever after and uh brian singer's jack and the giant slayer so we had a real powerhouse yeah you got like a guy who makes (laughs) shitty movies and a guy who does shitty things and makes shitty movies yeah collaborating together (laughs) so it's the director of both those movies and then they cast jack black to play a fictionalized version of arl stein and he (laughs) did a song i remember It was like goose your bumps or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You're feeling goosebumpy. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, goosebumps and Jack Black, and it, it just yeah, it was fine. But should it have been David Wayne. David Wayne. Oh yeah, and you know I'll show you a picture of David Wayne from. <laughs> did you ever watch the show like Stella or was it the Union, the big comedy group? Oh, the State. The state, I think, might be what you're thinking of. David Wayne, to me, looks like Arl Stein. I got it right. I thought you said at first Damon Wayans, and I was like, that's the second Wayans we've talked about as a what-if for <laughs> <laughs> casting on this show, which uh, I would have loved This more guy, he's in, like, oh, every okay. comedy. Yeah, I, I can see it. I can see it. Oh, okay. And I think he could play it seriously, but be goofy. Like, But yeah. he has straight, like, look at those dead eyes right there. Yeah. He does that's, have R.L. Stein's dead eyes. Mm-hmm. That's a very R.L. Stein look. Or if it happened way earlier, like if they did the Burton one, you get uh, not Bill Nye. The guy who, the Bueller, Ben Stein. Ben Stein, yeah. It's ben That's Stein to play R.L. Stein. Yeah. Are they related? <laughs> they could be. If I told you they were, you'd believe me, though, right? Because they yeah, both kind of have the same vibe going. Yeah. And I think there is something that he would have captured that made it interesting to make him a very boring person in a movie these are my books i hope you like them but he you know what he did i kind of want to know when garth Morange came out because i feel garth Morange's <laughs> openings because i don't know if it's early episodes or late episodes he introduces them 
And it's just like the Garth Marenghi opening. Yeah. Oh but it's the Arl Stein version. It's uh, it's the early episodes. Because okay. like uh, the, very, the very first one was Haunted Mask that they did. And it starts with him. It's black and white. He's yeah. standing like in amongst a whole bunch of pages. And it you know bleeds into the goosebumps with the neon green. But yeah, I mean, that's... I feel like an opener like that would have been appropriate. I feel like there was just, I don't know. Jack Black's just too much of a character actor. Like it just, it, it definitely, was, a, yeah. it was over the top. Like I appreciated, they tried to bring in some of like the camp of, of the books and of the TV show mm-hmm. because that was a huge part, like the horror and the humor together. And that it was uh, a focus of RL Stein. I, I was saving it for, the coulda, woulda, shoulda, but it's too appropriate for right now. I actually really wanted a Sam Raimi <sighs> for Goosebumps. Because I actually think Goosebumps is why I like Sam Raimi so sure. much. Mm-hmm. And it works. So, like, if he could have taken a, a, a concept even and turned that into, like, bigger budget Goosebumps movie... I'm there. He would also just like I feel he would actually put like himself into it. He seems yeah. like that kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Versus like I kind of like the idea of the John Carpenter version of Goosebumps, but he doesn't give a shit about Goosebumps. No, no, not at all. But, but Sam Raimi, he'd probably be on set with this, the couple of the books, like looking at them. <laughs> I could just imagine him trying to do something like the Haunted Mask, and just that over the top of like. When it like latches onto the face and it's like the like the the corner zoom into the screen yeah. and yeah I, I can actually picture it in my head like it totally works yeah A sweet maybe Bruce Campbell could just play R.L. Stein which oh. would be pretty good I think at that age yeah that he could time, do it he could yeah. do it Bruce Campbell would have been a good pick I, I'm glad you brought up Garth Marenghi's Dark Place though because <laughs> I kind of want. A Goosebumps movie, though, in that vibe. <laughs> like, give it to those guys? I'd love that. Just have, yeah, the guy who played Garth Marenghi. What's his name? Matthew Holness and mm-hmm. get Richard Iowati and Matt Barry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a nice British cast for this very American property, <laughs> yeah, I feel. American and Canadian. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Canadian. <laughs> Mr. Stein, your books are coming to life. <laughs> well, well, we just get a good Canadian like Cronenberg uh, to do it then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. But then, uh, so the movie came out. I think uh, second one then got into production shortly after that. Didn't really hear anything about it, so I assume it wasn't great. I remember watching it, and I was like, ooh, Jack Black's not in this, and he was in it. Oh, <laughs> he did end up being in it at the yeah. end. What is it called? Slappy's Revenge? That's what's kind of fun is because Jack Black plays Slappy, which if you were just telling me Jack Black's playing Slappy and that's it, that performance I remember being pretty good because he's doing like Jack Black thing, but it's like Jack Black Joker thing almost. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot more sense. I never saw the second one because I was just so underwhelmed with the first that I was kind of like, yeah, nah, I don't, I don't remember. But yeah, Slappy kind of takes the movie and it follows him for a while nice. and he's voiced by Jack Black. That's kind of <laughs> fun. That's better. Yeah, that's better. I just feel the big problem with that movie is like, I know everything's CG now, but I think leaning into the practicality of effects of the 90s would have made it feel more closer to the source. But when you have like a giant CG werewolf, it reminded me a lot of like the marshmallow scene from Afterlife or whatever. They're very similar vibes. Still haven't seen Ghostbusters 3. I'm I'm just waiting for the right time. 
when it's available to stream for free. <laughs> I'll continue saying that in these episodes, and then at some point I'll be like, Fred, I've seen Ghostbusters. <laughs> now we can do all the... Well, you're going to love it by the time you watch it, because you'll be like so like not about it. You'll be like, oh, it's not bad. It's okay. <laughs> Expectations are important. That's both. That's true. So wrap up our, our history here. So in April 2020... A very good time in the world. I don't know if everybody else was, was digging oh, that. Oh, it was a good time for me. <laughs> it was announced that a new Goosebumps live-action TV series was in the works by Scholastic Entertainment, Sony Pictures, and uh, Neil H. Moritz's production company, Original Film. In February 2022, then, it was announced that the series will be heading to Disney+. Plus. Mm. So that will be something to look forward to in the near future. Maybe they can get the Rescue Rangers writers to do the Goosebumps. I think they could probably do something with it. If they went and ripped off a few more movies like Rescue Rangers, not the same idea, but just the similar imagination, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. all in. I'm all in. Because I feel that's what you need for Goosebumps is kind of pointing out the cheese while like laying on the cheese. You gotta be like, here's the cheese on the cracker. I put it there, now eat it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely the the two kind of approaches. There's the Netflix Fear Street approach that we kind of talked about, which kind of elevates it. Or there's this self-referential sarcastic Chippendale version, which Mm -hmm. I would definitely appreciate that as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that the first movie tried to do a little bit, right? And like, oh, yeah, look, the books are coming to life. Ha ha, mm-hmm. shenanigans. But but I didn't do the Leonardo DiCaprio gif once while watching Oh. It. <laughs> and that's a good test of a legacy sequel is if I'm doing the yep. beer in hand point. Yep. Which I did the whole time during Rescue Rangers. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will say... I almost cried when I saw Darkwing Duck at the end. Yeah. <laughs> As we discussed uh, two episodes ago about Darkwing Duck, and I'm very, very up for that movie. I will say Top Gun Maverick also... I mean, from the very moment the movie starts, you're doing the Leo gif. So yeah. that's all I'll say about that. But Can I ask a question, and you can say whether or not you want to hear the answer? Is there a scene... With, like, a DH Tom Cruise in it? Do you want to know this or not? I do want to know this. No, there is not. Okay, for some reason I saw, like, a thing online where it was, like, him looking at, like, younger him in the Tom Cruise outfit. And maybe it was just a promotional thing. Uh, but I was like, mm. if they have, like, a two Cruise, like, young and old going at each other moment... moment That'd be pretty wild. No, the the thing of it is, is he just looks damn good for his age. Like, even in some well, moments. Well, there is that. Scientology works, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just looks good for, for 50 or whatever he is now. It's He's just getting it getting it done. And there's, there's enough sh- shots of him with his shirt open or off, and you're like, holy shit, he mm-hmm. looks pretty good. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's uh, but that's all there is to go see Maverick. Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise <laughs> looks pretty good. Tom Hanks does look pretty good though too. Let's not disregard that at all. Oh, yeah, Sully. Yeah, so we already started getting into coulda, woulda, shoulda, and I definitely wanted to stretch a little bit further because I think we've talked about some very good ideas so far. But I mean, is there any? Other things that are really on the top of your heads of like things you would love to see from the series, maybe hopes for. Beyond the Disney Plus series of like another movie adaptation. Some of the unreleased books 
I would love to see come out. That so would be cool. There's an entire series called Goosebumps Gold that mm. was never released in the 90s. There was a legal battle between Scholastic and Parachute Press over IP rights and monetization and marketing. And it ended with Scholastic purchasing all the IP rights. But in that shuffle, there was an entire series that has yet to be released. Wow. So I would love to see that. Are you asking them to release the Stein cut? Is that what you're saying? Release the Stein cut. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. How many books in total? I don't actually know. I I couldn't find anything about it. Just that was the name of the series was going to be Goosebumps Gold. Wow. The first one I see on here is The Haunted Mask Lives. Yeah. Look at this cover here as I'm showing our 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 guest and Fred here. It's a girl trying to rip a mask off her face that looks like it's trying to eat her or even though like i'm sure they picked the episodes they did for good reason but or they came back with this new disney plus show and they're like we're hitting the books we didn't cover yep hmm that would be pretty interesting though too. so you're getting like shit from the back in the day but with a new sheen well here's something i could ask you kind of in that same vein so we just got like a rebooted twilight zone series right and we also have gotten a rebooted creep show series so is there room for something in that vein for Goosebumps with this new series where maybe it's not necessarily adapting the old books, but it is like really good, like directors or artists like a Sam Raimi or like mm-hmm. a, Tim Burton. We'll just throw him out there, too, to come yeah, in. And Tim do, Burton wants to come in on an episode. He can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do their vision. Because what if like Tim Burton came and did like a stop motion episode mm-hmm. and it's just. But it's in the same vein of Goosebumps, and somehow it has that that R.L. Stein vein. I do like that. I was going to say, if you think about it, like, if Tim Burton comes in and says he wants to do an episode, you're not saying no. Right. Like, yeah, I think that would be really cool. There's definitely some uh, interpretation, depending on the director, that could be really cool in different directions. But mm-hmm. I think that would be fun. I- I'm, I'm excited for the Disney Plus, but I'm also apprehensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Creepshow is a good parallel, though. The new Creepshow is very much like just R-rated goosebumps over-the-topness. Well, yeah. Is it more of the... What are those called? It's the same thing from Tales of the Crypt. EC Comics. Yeah. Is what I'm thinking of. I don't keep Shudder, but I'll like get it here and there to catch up on some stuff, like Cursed Films. And uh, I'll definitely check out a couple episodes of Creepshow. That's pretty fun stuff. That was a show I do want to check out, is that Creepshow. Because I love the first movie. The the best segment in that movie, and it's something that I would love to see if they could do it with a similar actor, It's where they put Leslie Nielsen in a very dark role, and he is just hmm. menacing. Oh, nice. Yeah. I've never seen the movie. I need to. That's definitely a, a must. But I love it because it, it does exactly kind of what, what Goosebumps does, and then it sort of turns your expectations. Because when you see Leslie Nielsen walk on screen in a movie from the late 80s, you're like, Okay, things are about to get goofy. You're going to get some mm-hmm. some fun parodies. But no, he is just straight up like menacing, just like evil. And it's like a really nice. good role for him to chew the scenery. And I would love to see them try and do that with people of like like a good comic actor, maybe not like Jack Black, mm-hmm. but yeah. somebody else who could maybe just bring a little more gravitas to a role where it's like, oh, yeah, they're known as like, you know, like a, like a Disney kitty bopper. And then they just do something kind of like weirdly dark. Mm-hmm. I think some of those subversion roles are 
they pay off really well. I mean, I, it was not a good movie, but I'm immediately reminded of One Hour Photo mm. with Robin Williams. Definitely. Mm. Like, not a great movie, but he was terrifying in that yes. role. Like, a perfect non-comedy horror movie for mm-hmm. him. And that was one of those, like, subverted expectations. Like, you see Robin Williams, you're not thinking he's going to be terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, and it paid off. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, that's an adaptation of Say Cheese and Die. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing we didn't even talk about, too, when we started talking about the TV series was some of the famous faces that made their way into that Canadian TV show. One in particular we'll definitely have to bring up is Ryan Gosling, since he's about to have his little reemergence here in the next few Mm -hmm. months. And him in Say Cheese and Die. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just kind of mind-blowing to see some of these young actors who were nobody at the time and then came on to something. And then I saw Hayden Christensen in uh, (laughs) Night of the Living Dummy 3 in a very... It's about the acting you'd expect from him at that age. (laughs) Is he better or worse than the kid in Phantom Menace? (laughs) I, man, I think that kid, Jake Lloyd, who played young Vader... I think he got a real tough run. Like, he's better. Jake Lloyd, I'm saying, is better than young Hayden Christensen, but I don't know. I feel bad for that kid. He really got a lot of crap for being, what, 10 years old? Yeah. And all these, like, adult nerds kind of like us are just yeah. telling him he sucks. Just <laughs> crapping on it. And you've got George Lucas, who has a famously poor dialogue writing like mm-hmm. that's and he was also giving line reads to everyone too yeah yeah right. the guy with the most boring voice was giving line reads okay now say i don't like sand <laughs> now say <Yeah>. yippee <laughs> with a little more gusto a little mm-hmm. more huh <laughs> that's good yeah it was a very interesting series so maybe we will see some more kids who end up becoming bigger name actors down the line so I think that kind of gets us now to the end here and talking about our power rankings, which this week I'd love to talk to you fellas about the top three covers from the books. And Nick is our guest. I'll have you kick us off. All right. So maybe what you can do is describe the cover a little bit just so people, since we're doing a yeah, podcast. Yeah, we're trying to paint the picture here. Paint the picture. So... These are, like you said, covers only and don't necessarily tie to the story underneath. But one of my favorites is, I mentioned this story earlier, it's called You Can't Scare Me. Mm. And it's one of the original run. Uh, it's it's fairly early on in the 60 book series. But it's uh, the cover is kind of like sepia toned. It's orange. It's got trees and like fog in the background and uh so that's the like secondary run i might have it here it kind of looks like the swamp thing but made out of quicksand yeah it's like mud clay i didn't bring it but oh um, i got it now it's uh i didn't know they did a secondary run of covers yeah for the listeners at home i am looking up the covers so we can all look at them (laughs) at the same time and I found a remade cover for this book that he's talking about. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. So it's got like the tree and the swamp and it's about like these mud monsters that are you find out in the book that it's related to uh, drowned villagers that the upper class didn't save. Yeah, but it's it's just got that very creepy like swamp thing 
vibe to it, like traditional horror monster kind of deal that I always thought was a very, very cool cover. Would you say it was the greed and capitalistic nature of that upper crust that prevented (laughs) them from saving those people? Absolutely. Because then Romero was the guy. Yeah, that there's there's your there's your trope right there. The uh, the bourgeoisie rising again in the future to to kill your grandchildren. Clearly. I just wanted to say real quick before you go on to your second one. I do also love that they also have little like taglines for every book on the yeah. cover too. This one is "They're coming for you," which is also a reference to Romero, right? Mm-hmm. They're coming, They're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> so the next one uh, is one of the probably most famous covers, and that's the Haunted Mask, mm. the first one. This was also the first adapted book for the series. It was their very first episode. Two-parter, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, They did that a lot, sometimes unnecessarily. But it's a girl standing, like, center-focused on the camera. And she's got this, like, green goblin mask that she's, like, trying to pull off of her head. And I think that one just spoke to... I don't know. Like I definitely did this, but I'm sure a lot of kids like you got your head stuck in a mask and it was weird and creepy. And especially mm. if it was one of those like heavy plastic rubber ones, mm. and you, it got you got all clammy and kind of like claustrophobic and you couldn't get it off. It kind of speaks to that. So that that's one of the reasons why I, I love that cover. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, the, looks that's a good kill. Yeah. And then my favorite and I, I'm sure this is a classic amongst aficionados is uh, The Night of the Living Dummy, which is the mm. first iteration of Slappy, the ventriloquist dummy. And it's it's not just that it's like the front cover is the dummy and it's the face, but it's not just the fact that it's kind of like a creepy looking ventriloquist dummy. They actually drew it so that the face is tilted and slightly turned so it's actually like menacingly not looking at you kind of mm-hmm. thing, but the eyes are on you, which is, yeah. Oh, yeah. So like scary to me, that's even more creepy than it. Like if it was just staring straight at you, it's kind mm-hmm. of got that Sam Raimi corner zoom yeah. thing going on, mm-hmm. but it's another one super early in the run. It's the, the introduction of probably the most famous, monster in in all of goosebumps but that one it it just to me like that's the creepiest of of the books of the covers anyway for sure and also another romero reference with night of the living yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. he walks he stalks is this tagline (laughs) that's a good pick though i think all three of those are very vivid covers and if you have never seen a goosebumps book uh, we'll have uh, some in our promotional photo this week you can take a look at, but otherwise I would definitely encourage you to Google that and take a peek yourself because I think they are, they're quite enticing. Tim Jacobus definitely did a uh, very good job of learning kids with that. That sounded bad. <laughs> learning kids. Yeah. Trying to market to children. There you go. <laughs> Fred, what about you? I have two lists, so I'll go quick. These are my favorite Werewolf of Fever Swamp. It's pretty basic. It's just like a wolf in the swamp howling. But I think the color scheme of the 
book is really cool. It's got like a purples and blues. Yeah, right. It's more the coloring that's something on that one, I think. And then I have Welcome to Camp Nightmare, which is like the tent with the spooky hand coming around mm-hmm. and just that glowing eyes. And I'll say the other one, uh, Scarecrow Walks at Midnight, which is Ooh. just a creepy scarecrow. And scarecrows, werewolves, these are things that I find super creepy. Yeah. It's very like Jeepers Creepers-esque. Oh, yeah, definitely. So then I have my top three of most unsettling, like the ones that I look at and just make me feel creeped out, which are why I'm afraid of bees was just a big head superimposed on a bee. Mm -hmm. And the kid looks like full of dread. That's that dread I'm talking about. Just like what the hell has happened? Then I have the horror at Camp Jelly Jam, which you can show him in person. That was one of the books you brought. Take a look at this creep. Oh my that gosh. face is just super unsettling to me. Yeah. And then the third one. He looks like the guidance counselor from Adam's Family Values. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of like mixed. Yeah. There's like those teeth are not human. Yeah. Like, that's not real. Or what was that guy's? What's the actor's name? He's Janish in Ghostbusters too. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. But, uh, He's in so much stuff too. I'll find uh, out later. My last unsettling one is um, Chicken Chicken. I think that's an unsettling ass picture. <laughs> the proportions, the face, it freaks me out. Wow. What about you, Tom? Well, those are great picks, guys, especially for a few of these I was looking up and I'd never seen or I hadn't seen in a long time. I mean, I've seen these before, but not regularly. So mine have to go back to my T-shirt that I'll share in a photo also on our promotional mm. tour here. But say cheese and die. Uh, I mentioned it already, but it's equal parts unsettling and just like can't look away with the people on the cover that are all skeletons. It's a family that are at a cookout. They all look like they're having a great time, but they're just skeletons. And it's just something very, very unsettling, kind of skin crawling, just ironic because they don't have skin, but (laughs) it's just leaves you kind of feeling, I don't know. The Curse of Camp Cold Lake. I have just a weird thing about things coming out of the water ever since I saw the first Friday the 13th. And that was definitely one that I remembered that cover and seeing it. And I hated it because it is just this yeah. eyes peeking out of the no water. Nose. No nose. Yeah. Like very sc- that's the cover that I agreed with your list. Yeah. I really like that one. Cause it's just, it almost looks like, it's like an entity that's going to just drag you into the water, kind of like Jason, right? And it just ugh, still sticks with me. So I kind of did both the way you did, Fred, of like I look for things that I like the best and the ones that also were the most unsettling to me. And the last one is stay out of the basement. So that is just a plant hand kind of creeping out of a door. I just love the way you can kind of see the the weeds and the the leaves kind of coming out of the hand. It looks like Swamp Thing is kind of like reaching out at you. Mm-hmm. And it's such a weird thing with the tagline, something's waiting in the dark. I mean, basements are creepy, especially when you're a kid. So when you see that, it's coming out of your basement, you never want to actually go in your actual basement. Those are my three. And I think those are probably all collectively... Easily the best of the covers or the most recognizable. I don't think we missed one that anyone's going to be like, yeah, why didn't you talk about that one? And if you do feel that way, 
let us know. Yeah. You can reach out to us. You can tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> tell us why we're maybe we were wrong. We are at State of the Franchise Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> I had to make sure that was the actual email address. We've only used it a couple of times. That gets us into our plug segment since we are plugging things and our concluding thoughts here for the show. So, Nick, I, I know you're not somebody who does a lot of projects, but is there anything you would like to plug for yourself? <laughs> Uh, not really for myself, uh, but I would say, you know, support your local arts, you know, check out shows, go to music events, go to, go to comedy, go to improv, go, you know, see local things, support your community, go to your local library, check out these books. Um, you know, those, those kind of places do a lot of good for a lot of people. So definitely take some extra time. If you're looking for a movie, maybe grab it from the library. Like there can't hurt. Yeah. That's Definitely. a great call out. Yeah, I think if anything comes from this episode, which I think is our first one on books specifically, mm-hmm. y'all go and read something. It's good for you. Yeah, read a book, <laughs> slobs. <laughs> Fred, what about you? Anything you'd like to plug? Just check out Interchange Theater. I'll be doing something. <laughs> Very short but sweet. Interchangetheater.com. See Fred in some shows. Uh, we had some fun a couple of weeks ago performing, Fred. Yeah, <laughs> so, it was amazing. We killed it. Yeah, great time. Had a lot of fun. Uh, so, yeah, come out and check out more. I will plug our Buy Me a Coffee page, buymeacoffee.com slash S-O-T-F. Uh, we are still just trying to pull in some funds to help support the show, support some of the new equipment we're trying to get in here. At the end of the day, all we're looking for is your support for the show. If you feel like dropping us a couple bucks, awesome. But really, we're just so happy you come and listen to us every week and enjoy this. Uh, any closing thoughts you guys have for Goosebumps? Hey, be careful out there. It can be spooky. <laughs> You're in for a scare. They were in for a scare. And they're still in for a scare. They don't know how this episode's going to end yet. But Nick. Wanted to thank you for coming out here today and talking with us. This has been a lot of fun talking about Goosebumps. And uh, stay tuned for next episode. We'll be talking about Curb Your Enthusiasm, the HBO TV series by Larry David. (laughs) What else can we even say after that? That's the end of the episode. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. 